This doctrinal tape study is titled, How Jesus Changed the Law, and our speaker is Elder Ray Straub. One of the interesting themes of the Bible has to do with the changes Jesus made in the law. Opinions are numerous, and they certainly vary. Many viewpoints suggest that Jesus was antinomian. Antinomian is a theological term which can be easily understood. Nomian comes from the Greek word nomos, meaning law. We're familiar with the prefix anti, meaning in opposition to. Hence, an antinomian attitude would be one which opposes law. More specifically, antinomianism views the gospel as making obedience to the law unnecessary or even damaging to one's hope for salvation. Some understand that Jesus' ministry abrogated or put an end to the need to observe law. For Christ is the end of the law is an incomplete, out-of-context phrase lifted from Romans 10.4 to suggest Jesus' effect on the law. Did Jesus think that the law has no purpose for Christians? When he announced that he came to fulfill the law, did that mean that he came to end it? The answer to these questions is most important. We need to know what the will of God is. Enthusiasm is a superb Christian quality because it's contagious and inspirational. It's a valuable ingredient in any growth program. It brings action. It is a characteristic which seems to reveal evidence of the Holy Spirit. Being enthusiastic is not good enough. It needs knowledge to give it value. Paul noted that zeal without knowledge was a problem with Israel. He observed, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Romans 10.3 Whatever we have to offer, be it enthusiasm, devotion, or other values, these gifts need to be supported by knowledge about God's will. Note Paul's familiar words in Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Did you catch the phrase, acceptable unto God? It deserves attention. Let's continue with the following verse. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This advice by Paul challenges us to determine as carefully as possible what God's will is. Not only are we concerned about Jesus' attitude toward law because it reveals God's will, but we also want to understand how Jesus was our example. Anyone who reads the New Testament will be impressed with the repeated counsel that our lives must be patterned after Jesus. He is our example. He lived perfectly. The more we understand about Him and His attitudes, the more clearly He comes into focus as one whom we should be following. 
efforts to determine Jesus' attitude toward law are important. Jesus did God's will. We want to understand as fully as possible what this truth suggests. It will help us to determine the New Testament attitude toward law if we understand certain changes which took place previous to Jesus' ministry. When the law was first handed down by Moses, its purpose was to safeguard and protect the covenant God made with His people through Abraham. The law reminded the Israelites of their sinfulness. Blood spilled in offering sacrifices demonstrated the gravity of sin. The law also protected God's people from contamination, both in regard to their physical hygiene and in political and social alliances with heathen nations. God revealed Himself to His people through the law. This was reflected in the content of the law and in God's reaction to Israel as they either conformed to or ignored the regulations. The law also had a prophetic quality. The ceremonial types symbolized future developments and realities. The Passover ceremonies, as well as the Day of Atonement rites, along with the celebrations of Pentecost and booths, all pointed toward future celebrations. Such was the nature of the law and the attitude of the people toward it until their captivity. Following the release of Israel, the law assumed a new role, that of mediator. Now the law was not seen as a revelation of God, but rather as a means by which one could gain favor with the Creator. Israel no longer saw herself as a nation that had special status because of who God was and how He looked upon them. The nation now sensed that her status depended on how precisely she obeyed the law. The law became dominant in a mediatorial position. The rabbis taught that God was totally righteous. People could achieve a degree of righteousness through law-keeping. The better they were at obeying, the more like God they were, and the more they felt worthy of His attention and concern and approval. It was through the law that they approached a righteous, holy God. This emphasis upon the mediatorial position of the law produced much pretension. Thou therefore that teachest another, Paul writes, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest, a man should not steal, dost thou steal? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans 2, 21, 28, and 29. The law does not serve well in a mediatorial position, because it exposes the weakness of human nature. It can only expose. It cannot cleanse. Jesus removed law from its mediatorial position. It's important that this change be understood. God gave the Old Covenant for purposes of self-revelation. These laws also meant to reveal the righteousness of God. They were not intended to serve as a mediator between God and man, because law can never fulfill that role. Some may pretend that works of righteousness can obligate God to save them, but it will never happen, because the works are never adequate. There must be a mediator between humanity and God other than the law, or there can never be reconciliation. Jesus removed law from this mediatorial position. He became mediator between God and sinful humanity. 
Because the law cannot function as a mediator does not mean it is worthless. Because a toothbrush cannot mow a lawn does not make it worthless. Used correctly, a toothbrush performs a function of substantial value. The same is true of law. The law cannot forgive the sin it condemns. It cannot give overcoming power to those whose weaknesses it exposes. And it cannot provide access to solutions. However, it serves effectively in regulating and safeguarding, which is what it was designed to do. This concludes Side 1 of our study, How Jesus Changed the Law. This study will continue on Side 2. To acquaint ourselves with Jesus' attitude toward the law, we will examine carefully a portion of his Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5, 17 and forward. Please note carefully the manner in which he begins this important pericope. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. It is interesting how widely Jesus' declaration of having fulfilled the law is interpreted to mean that he abrogated it. This conclusion surfaces even though Jesus had twice, not once, but twice mentioned that he did not come to destroy the law. He advised that none ought even to think that. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Well, I'm willing to agree with his advice. He continued, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Verse 20 of Matthew 5 deserves careful attention. Note Jesus' warning. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is definite. Jesus intends that our righteousness should exceed, go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. This would not be easy. The Pharisees were the strictest of the sects when it came to law-keeping. The scribes were their experts in writing, studying, and interpreting the law. In spite of the substantial effort the scribes and Pharisees put into obeying the law, our righteousness must go beyond theirs. How can it? How can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Let's examine parts of the lengthy passage that begins with verse 21. This verse, along with verse 22, may be paired with three other sets of similar verses through the rest of the chapter. The others are 27 and 28, 33 and 34, and 43 and 44. Each of these four doublets begins by stating a law. 
For instance, verse 21 begins, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. The following verse begins, But I say unto you. In other words, we have four instances where Jesus quoted a law, followed by a change which he inaugurated. He seems to contrast the old with the new. A word of caution is in order. These statements, the old law and Jesus' amendments, are not antithetical. They do not contrast or oppose each other. To the contrary, the changes Jesus brought complement the law. The old law decreed punishment only if the offender was caught in the performance of his misdeed. Jesus extended the law to regulate the passion behind the crime. Now, the law not only evaluated deeds, but it sought to guide the spirit. Indeed, this application of the law is totally consistent with the terms of the new covenant. It is simply stated in Hebrews 10:16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. You may wish to review this statement in Hebrews 10:16. See if that is not precisely the application Jesus made in his pronouncements of Matthew 5:21 and forward. Consider also the profound summation of the gospel Jesus gave to Nicodemus, which may be read in John chapter 3. Here, the curiosity of Nicodemus was rewarded with a confounding response. Qualifications for God's kingdom include a new birth. It speaks of the development of a spiritual awareness. The birth of spiritual sensitivity lets us know that we are God's children. With this spiritual nature, we share in the being of God and produce fruit of the Spirit. Jesus' commentary about the law is focused on man's spirit. This is the extension of law, which previously involved only a man's actions. Previously, one could be held guilty for committing murder. Jesus identified hate as a spiritual sin of equal gravity. Earlier, people were punished when they engaged in the act of adultery. Jesus said that lusting was a breach of the commandment because it was part of a sinful spirit. The commands of Jesus were not an antithesis of the law, they were a complement. Flesh born of flesh was expected to obey God's laws. According to Jesus, that which is born of the Spirit is also subject to God's laws. Jesus' attitude toward law is nowhere better demonstrated than in the brief passage found in Matthew 5, 27-32. This pericope begins by referring to the law which said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus extended this to include the human spirit. He said it was wrong to look on a woman to lust after her. Note the rest of the paragraph. Continuing with verse 29, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. The following verse gives the same advice about an offensive hand. In this usage, the word offend refers to causing sin. In other words, 
Jesus is saying that if your right eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. It's better to lose one eye than the whole body, which is what would happen if the sin-causing member is not dealt with. The message here is clear. Jesus urged his disciples to rid themselves of any cause for wrongdoing. Sin is defined by the Bible. In 1 John 3, 4, it is called the transgression of the law, or lawlessness. Jesus taught that whatever causes lawlessness must be dispensed with. He then proceeds to comment on the divorce laws. In verse 31 and 32, he makes an observation regarding positions taken by prominent rabbinic schools. Rabbi Hillel led a school which was permissive in the matter of divorce. Any husband who was dissatisfied with his wife for any reason needed only to sign a document, have it witnessed to, and a divorce was in effect. Jesus took a position in favor of the law. He insisted that anyone who remarried after divorce committed adultery. The only exception was if the cause for divorce was sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus upheld the law. He was not antinomian. Jesus came to redeem mankind from lawlessness. This part of his ministry needs to be understood correctly. It was not the purpose of our Savior to give respectability or permissiveness to law-breaking. Note this series of verses which comment on lawlessness. 1 John 3 begins with an inspirational reminder of the second coming of Jesus. Verse 3 says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Verses 4 and 5 are important. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The phrase transgression of the law in verse 4 is translated from the Greek word anomia, which literally means lawlessness. The simple definition of sin is lawlessness. Verse 5 says that Jesus came to take away our lawlessness. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2, 11-14. The word iniquity in verse 14 is translated from anomia, or lawlessness. This passage again reminds us that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus identified lawlessness as the cause for a decrease in love. His statement is found in Matthew 24, 12. He said, and because iniquity, or lawlessness, taken from anomia, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. It has been suggested that Jesus brought the laws of love to replace the laws of God. Hardly. When God's laws are taken away, love grows cold. It is obedience to God 
which causes love to be cultivated and expressed. One of the most pointed observations Jesus made about lawlessness is found toward the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21-23. Here he warned, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Analyzing this passage, we give special attention to what is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who enter are those who do the Father's will. The next verse cites substitute values that have been adopted by some who would enter the kingdom of God without really yielding to the will of God. Note what these alternate values are. Continuing with verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Listening to the Electric Church, the many religious broadcasts on radio and television, and hearing claims of spectacular happenings in larger churches around the world, one wonders if these apparent miracles and insights into prophecy might not signal the special working of God. Do these people really see the arm of the Lord revealed? Jesus said they don't. Prophecy, exorcism, and miracle working get attention. It can turn a prophet. People are inclined to support what is visible. What will be the words of Jesus in judgment to the lawless who have depended upon prophetic insights, casting out demons, and demonstrating the power of the supernatural? I read verse 23 of Matthew 7, And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Yes, iniquity is translated from anomia, meaning lawlessness. In judgment, Jesus will ask the lawless to depart from him, and this will be done because no personal acquaintance was ever established. Jesus is not antinomian. He extended the application of law to include the Spirit. Those who are acquainted with Jesus know this. Let's remind ourselves of the kind of society which exists in institutions housing those convicted of crimes. The atmosphere is ominous. An entirely different way of life exists there. What matters is survival. New arrivals at prisons are called fish by inmates. They are viewed as prospects for homosexual and other indecent indulgences. There is the constant fashioning of crude knives to commit stabbings, a frequent occurrence in such places. Racism fans blind and vengeful hatred. Those who attempt to express faith in worship are ridiculed and resented. Violence is commonplace. People are brutalized. Equipment is broken out of pure frustration, and decency is shattered. These are places for the lawless. This is where we group those who have no regard for law. This is how men live who feel that the law does not apply to them. Can it be reasonable that Jesus came to remove law, thereby creating such a society? What kind of logic would suggest that the mission of Jesus was to abrogate all law? We have exposure to lawlessness constantly, we have no appetite for such a lifestyle. Yes, Jesus changed the law. He did not do away with it. To the contrary, he extended it. 
Now it covers not only our deeds, but our very spirits. Happiness and love abound where God's laws are written on human hearts. That concludes our doctrinal study entitled, How Jesus Changed the Law. The Doctrinal Cassette Series of the Church of God's Seventh Day is a presentation of the Media Outreach Agency.